I'm always excited when we start a new series that's in a book. You know, the majority of what I do, if you guys are around here at all, is I take books of the Bible and I just go through them. You know, sometimes, like last week, we spent a couple weeks just on one portion. You know, we took Matthew 24 and 25, and we looked at that and saying, okay, what's Jesus have to say about the time, um, the season of the end times, at the end of the end times before he returns? And, you know, and I love doing that. And sometimes there's specific things we speak about. But for the majority around Portview Church, what I do is I take books of the Bible and I go through them or portions of a book of the Bible. And there's a reason that I do that. Um, it's this. I don't think I'm more creative than God. A lot of, we get, the church world has turned into such a cutesy little marketing whatever. It's always some latest thing to try to just hook people. I'm just like, uh, God gave us the book. It's, it's God's word, and I don't think I can improve upon God's word. And so I just think that the best thing we can do is take God's word and let God's word just speak to us. And so starting today for the next little while, um, we're going to be looking at what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And what we're going to find when we get in the book of Philippians is that basically, and you might not have known this, that the book of Philippians is just a thank you note. That's all it is. The Apostle Paul is writing a thank you note to his supporters in the city of Philippi. That um, he had planted that church, he loved that church, they loved him. And that Paul, when he writes this, and he wrote some other books in the same situation, he's locked in jail. And being locked in jail in Paul's time is not like being locked in jail in our time in America, where you get, you know, three meals a day and, you know, you get food. In Paul's day, if people did not provide for you, if outsiders didn't give you food to eat, you starved. And so imagine the, what it the, was like in a jail if outsiders didn't bring you food, but then outsiders brought some other people food. What do you think it would be like in the, the atmosphere inside a prison? It would be chaos, it would be hatred, it would be fighting, it would be killing each other over getting food. And can you imagine what it's like? When we lived in Cambodia, that's what the jails are like in Cambodia. Today, at least 10 years ago they were. Well, you got locked in jail, the jail didn't provide you with food. If your family didn't bring you stuff to eat, you didn't have anything to eat. So the rule of thumb, the first rule, they, one of the first things they taught us, number, they bite you in Cambodia was don't touch evil monkeys because um, monkeys are evil. They bite you and they're mean. You think they're cute, but they're rotten. That was the first rule they taught us. Don't pet a monkey um, because they're all over the place. And the second one is don't go to jail. <laughs> don't do anything to go to jail, like car accidents and stuff, where they might arrest you because the jails are just horrible. Um, and so that's the kind of situation Paul's in. We kind of write this stuff time and go, oh, Paul was in jail. No, Paul was in prison, and these Philippians were the only ones, he said, who were supporting him while he's in jail. They actually sent one of their people there to give him money. And so you see as we go through the book, and he's like, hey, I've learned to live in abundance, and I've learned to live in, in, with nothing, with no food for my stomach. He's talking about real life, you know, and you Philippians are the only ones who partnered with me. And so he's sending a thank you note to the Philippians. And the reason I want to take time at this time, sometime, to go through this letter is because of the attitude that we see from the Apostle Paul that comes through this letter. And if, if anybody knows the book of Philippians, there's a word that defines the book of Philippians. What's, what is it? Joy. What we see in Paul writing from jail is that he's joyful. And that we're going to find going through the books, he's writing to the Philippians that they ought to be joyful also. And we're going to see actually 13 times in four short chapters, Paul deals with being joyful. He says he's joyful or he wants them to be joyful. 
He is joyful, imagine, even though he's in a prison where he's completely dependent upon the goodwill of others. If the Philippians don't bring him food, he doesn't have any food. And he knows it's possible that as he walks through this, this time in prison, eventually the trial, he may end up um, being killed for his faith. Now, here's what I want as we spend these weeks in Philippians. I want Paul to rub off on us. I want to be more like the Apostle Paul. I want us to be joyful in these crazy times that we're living in. I want you and me to be joyful no matter what we are going through. And here's the deal. That's why I, wanted, why I felt compelled to the Spirit um, to spend time in Philippians. Paul shows it's possible. Paul's just an average guy like you and me. Nothing special about Paul in the sense that he's just a normal human being living with God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and Paul shows that it's possible to live a joy-filled life in the midst of great adversity. And that's why we're going to spend some time with Paul and the church in Philippi. Now, next week, we're going to actually start going into specifics about what's going on with Paul and, and how he was joyful and how he um, challenged the Philippians to be joyful also, and we'll kind of see that as we work through the book. But for today... I want to just look at the introductory verses, the first two verses. So grab your Bible, open up to Philippians, the first chapter, and these first two verses, the introduction would be so easy to just skip past. Um, But I want to take a look at them, because although this is a standard opening, the way a standard letter would have been written in Paul's time, it would have said, here's who I am, here's who I'm writing to, um, that would have been a standard opening. Paul makes it unique. And I want to look at this, um, these few verses, because I think they lay a foundation that is essential for any one of us that wants to live a joy-filled, healthy, growing Christian life. And this introduction has a lot to do with basically this, how you view yourself in relationship to yourself in relationship to God, and relationship to his church. And I think that view or that understanding, that bedrock view of life, um, that that becomes the source from which a healthy, joyous Christian life can flow. So these aren't words just to skip by. I don't think the Spirit inspired Paul to to waste words. And so we're going to find something really important here, I think, as we go through this. These first two verses. Somebody asked me this morning, they said, you're starting in in Philippians this morning, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I I am. They said, are you going to do it verse by verse? And I don't think it was like, oh, joy, are you going to do it verse by verse? I said, section by section. And and so it doesn't take quite as much time. But this section, let's just look at this together. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy... So Timothy is his minister, ministry partner. Timothy is, he calls him his son in the faith, that Paul's mentoring him. So Paul and Timothy, Jesus, who are in bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me this morning. Father, here's my my hope is that you open up our minds and our spirits so that as we allow your word to speak to us today, 
that, Lord, we would literally be transformed in our thinking. We'd be conformed to your thinking about ourselves, about you, about our relationship to the church, so that that bedrock would exist, that foundation upon which you could help us build joy-filled lives in the midst of a world that's in chaos. And so, Lord, we trust you this morning. Holy Spirit, I don't want to waste words. We don't want to sit here and just waste time. We need you to minister life to us from your word today. We thank you your word's alive and it's powerful. So, Lord, we invite your influence by your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. What we find in these couple two verses, this introduction, is that, maybe you notice this, as Paul uses particular words to describe people and God, that these descriptive words have a lot to say to us about how we understand ourselves in relationship to God and how we, how we understand our relationship to the church that God is building. And as I see it, understanding this is essential source um, for our joy-filled life. So let's take a look at these descriptive words that Paul uses in his introduction And this is what I want us to do. I want to allow each one to ask us an important question. So we're going to look at what the word is, but then every one of them naturally then asks us an important, leads us to ask ourselves an important question that comes out of understanding that descriptive word. So we're going to look at these together. So look at the first descriptive word. It's talking about these are words that are describing people um, in this introduction. The first descriptive word, Paul says this, Paul and Timothy describe themselves as what? As bondservants. Now, I read the New American Standard Version, um, at least that's what I preach out of, and the word is bondservant. Some of you read the New Living Translation, yours says slaves. Some of you have the message translation probably, it says committed servants. And some of you, like my wife, have the nearly inspired version, the NIV, um, and it says servants. Um, there's a reason I point those out. I usually wouldn't do that, but the reason I point that out is they're trying to figure out what's the word that Paul used mean, and they're all trying to at least get at the same idea. They're trying to say this is what this means, that you're a servant. You're a bond servant. You're a committed servant to the Lord. And think about this for a moment. Because sometimes you've got you to put some puzzle pieces together for things to make sense. Somebody said to me last week, they said, oh, Pastor Mark, when you went through Matthew 24 and 25, man, that made so much sense to me. And, I've, and what I want to say in that situation is, if we'll just take time with the text and let the text say what it's supposed to say and put it in context, you go, oh, that's what that says. And I know obviously there's different giftings that people have to do that, but we're going to see here the importance of this on how you just let the text, think about the text, you go, oh, wow, that's revealing some really important things that maybe if I just spend some time with it, these puzzle pieces would go together and I'd get it. So think about this for a moment. The Paul saying, I'm a bondservant. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the one who established the church in Philippi that he's writing to. He's the one who went around and spread the gospel and established churches in, that says, in the then whole known world. In Philippi here, that he wrote, this, this is the first church ever established in Europe. Think, you know, if, if Paul hadn't have gone to Philippi in Macedonia, um, we might not know the gospel today. We might not know Jesus, because Paul went to the first European um, church ever established. Paul 
was the biggest of the big dogs of the church world. If you think who is the biggest mover and shaker in the church world in Paul's day, Paul was it. Yet, the first words, the primary way he describes himself is as a servant or a slave or a bondservant or a committed servant of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see himself so he feels he's not arrogant. He feels no need to elevate himself so he feels special. No, he says, hey guys, I'm Paul and who I am is I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Jesus. Now, I know this could stir up all kinds of negative ideas, especially in our current environment, of idea of forced obedience and abuse. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is a willing servant of Jesus. Think of that. He's a willing servant of Jesus. Who's Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate servant. Jesus is the one who described himself as a servant, who gave his very life to serve mankind and creation, So Paul is a willing servant of the ultimate servant. That means Paul willingly submits to the leadership of Jesus. He willingly follows Jesus' lead. He willingly follows Jesus' rules. He willingly follows Jesus' ideas. He willingly embraces Jesus' values. Now this idea then of him being a servant gives rise to the first question that I think we have to ask ourselves in light of what this descriptive word reveals. Paul's saying, I'm the great apostle. He doesn't say that. He says, I am a servant. And here's the question that has to rise out of that. Do you see yourself as a servant of Jesus? Do you see yourself, do I see myself, as a servant of Jesus? And if so, don't answer too quickly. If so... How is that expressed? You know, it's one thing to say that we know that, that Paul saw himself as a servant of Jesus. It's quite another to see myself as a servant of Jesus. And that's a huge difference than just saying I'm a, I'm a fan of Jesus or even saying I'm a follower of Jesus because that could mean a lot of things. But Paul says I'm a, a servant of Jesus. And I want you to do something right now. I want you to honestly think about the last seven days of your life, from last Sunday till today. Just think about a moment. What, what, did that, what did this last week look like? What about your life would express that you put your plans and your wants and the values of Jesus as the center of your world? where you, in essence, put Jesus' plans and Jesus' wants and Jesus' values ahead of your own. Because wouldn't that be how we would determine if we viewed ourselves as a servant of Jesus? That's how Paul and Timothy viewed themselves. Jesus was Lord, and they willingly submitted to him being in charge and him leading the way. So if you think of our last seven days... What would would anything of our last seven days say to to me or to somebody looking at me? You know what? That That guy is a servant of Jesus. That guy follows Jesus. He listens. He obeys. He does what Jesus wants. And I believe we'll discover this, that this is one of the key aspects why Paul could experience joy in adversity. 
because he knew that he was fully serving Jesus. He knew Jesus was king of kings and lord of lords, and he said, listen, I'm not the boss, I'm not in charge, he is. And he walked through whatever adversity came and said, you know what, I'm serving the Lord. I'm not going my way. I'm not trying to figure things out for myself. I am serving the Lord. He's in charge and I am not. That brings a lot of of rest to a soul in an anxious time. Jesus is Lord and I'm following him. So we ask ourselves, do I see myself as a servant of Jesus? As one who honestly follows him and looks for his lead and looks for, for what he wants in my life? That's how Paul saw himself. Remember, this is the man of joy, joy in prison. The first thing, the very first word he says about himself is, I'm a servant. Let's look at the second descriptive word. The second descriptive word, after describing himself as a servant, Paul then describes who he's writing to. Look what he says. To all the what? The saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. That word, saints, a descriptive word, saints. He could have said to all the people, but he said to all the saints who are in Philippi. This word saints can have a problem to people like, to describe in a, or historically some of us have been taught to use this term, to describe an elite set of super Christians, ones who lived unique, devoted Christian lives that were, that were said, okay, this is somebody highly unique and unusual. Well, there's a problem with that thinking, that understanding. And the problem here becomes really clear how that can't be the case Because look, how did Paul write this to? Look what it says. He writes it to all the saints in Philippi. He's not saying, and I'm writing to that one really good saint in Philippi. He said, I'm writing to all the saints in Philippi. He was calling all those those who were Christians saints. See, when Paul says Christians are saints, he isn't saying that somehow they are super Christians. Rather, he's describing the reality of who a Christian really is in Christ. What they become when they say yes to Jesus' call to follow him to be his bond servant. If you choose to be his bond servant, he then says you become a saint. That when we become a Christian, we become a saint. That is, we become ones who are separated. The word saint literally means separated ones. And in application to you and I as Christ followers, there's really two primary ways that's applied to our lives that are both essential, that we're separated ones, we're saints. When Paul was saying this, he was saying, you're saints, you could put the words in, and to the separated ones who are in Philippi, that they are, we are separated from evil, that we live lives on purpose separating ourselves from evil, and that we are separated unto God. See, when you came to Christ, you didn't join a religious club. No, you entered into a relationship with God through Christ, and from then on, you are to be separate from the evil of this world and set apart unto God. And that understanding will affect everything about your life. Everything about your life will be affected. If you see yourself as separated from evil, you say, I don't live that way anymore. And Paul repeatedly in his letters is writing, hey, you used to act this way, but now you're a new creation. Now you act this way. He's saying you're separated from evil. You're a saint. You're separated unto, uh, 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 from evil, but you're separated unto God. Well, that's what a servant is. 
You separate unto God. You say, now, my life is now not my own. It is, I'm separated unto God. He's now my ruler and my leader. Does that mean I'll be perfect? Separated unto God and separated from evil? No. But it does mean we see ourselves as separated um, unto God and separated from evil, and that will change everything about how I choose to live my daily life. And understanding this, being separated from evil and being separated unto God, it's both empowering and it's challenging. It's, in, it's empowering because it's, it's, um, if that's who we really are, then it is possible to live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I'm really separated from evil and separated unto God, that's empowering. Paul says, this is who you really are. You might not feel like it, but he says, if you're a child of God, it's who you really are. You're a saint. You're separated. And that means it is possible to live a separated life. It does not mean you're separated from the people of the world. It means you're, that in the world you live and you interact but you separate yourself from evil and you devote yourself unto God. So it's empowering saying, it's possible to live like that. It's also challenging because it says that we have a high and a holy calling. And listen, it's time to stop crawling in the mud with the rest of our society. That's what he's saying. He says, you're saints. He looks at us. He's looking at the church. He goes, you're saints. Stop acting like the rest of the world. Stop fighting like the rest of the world. Stop being like the rest of the world. Stop crawling in the mud like the rest of the world. We are saints. We are separated ones. Separated unto God and separated away from sin. That's who God says we are. So we're called to be saints. We're called to be servants and saints. Servants or saints that serve. Those are the first two descriptive words. What else? Descriptive word number three. You're going to see how this all comes together in the end. In Paul's description of the saints of Philippi, look what he does. He singles out two groups of people, overseers in school, the teachers kids. Now, I need you to do something with me. Remember when you used to be in school? They still do this in school. The teachers ever say, now put on your thinking caps. Does any teacher ever said it to you? Good. They're still using that, that corny line. Put on your thinking caps. I need you to put on your thinking caps. Because you need to think a little bit below the surface right here. You need, to, you need to see some implications of what Paul's writing. Think a little deeper than just the surface. So follow my thinking here. Paul calls all the Christian saints, and then he points out the overseers and the deacons of a local church, the church at Philippi. He's, talk, he's writing, remember, he's writing to the church in Philippi, and he describes two leadership positions in the local church of Philippi, overseers and deacons. And here's the question. What does that say to us? It says this. Paul saw the value of the structured local church. Remember who Paul was. He was a church planter. He's the one who established churches. And he planted those churches and he established those churches and he developed their physical structure and their leadership structure, right? That's what he went around doing. Other places, he writes to people like Timothy and says, hey, I left you this job. Establish deacons and elders. He's saying, this is what I do. He established local churches. And here are two positions that he would establish in any local church that he was establishing. He'd establish overseers, those who keep watch over what's going on, that protect the church, that teach and preach. So it would be people like our church staff, me. He'd establish me as a leader. He'd say, you're an overseer, Mark. 
And then he established deacons, those who serve, those who do ministry, those who do helps. Now what question then arises from Paul's describing these two local church ministries? It's this. The question is, do you, do me, do you see the essential value of the local church? And then are you fulfilling the role that God has created for you in the local church? Friends, never before in my lifetime that I've been 30 years as a pastor, just about 30 years, has such an important and relevant topic come to light in regard to our current global and American cultural circumstance where we find that many are concluding that it's proper, it just, four months, it accelerated 15 years, it is proper to just be a consumer of Christian content and media. You know what the most recent numbers from from Barna poll say? Or I think it's Barna. That in surveys of people in the last four months during COVID in America, this is people who describe themselves as active Christians. That one third, one in three say they have no plans on ever returning to a local church again. One in three. You know who Nicky Gumbel is? Oh, he's in London, the pastor of the biggest church in London. He's the guy who started Alpha. A course we've used in the church in the past. Matter of fact, um, Christian Elias, when you came in this church, you came on a Wednesday night to do Alpha in this church, and we're probably going to be launching Alpha again in the near future. Alpha, incredible ministry. He's now the pastor, the vicar of the largest church in London. And he's come out recently and said they fully expect that 70% of their congregation will never return to church. 70%. The average right now, you guys want to know something? You're an anomaly. When everybody asks me, well, how many people have come back to your church? I said, well, pretty much everybody. They're like, no, no, that's not possible. I said, yeah, pretty much everybody. We're, we're a little bit smaller than we would have been in the middle of summer. I mean, probably 25%. I said, most people have returned. Some people have health issues and some people have other issues. are just like, yeah, you know, I'm not comfortable yet. But pretty much everybody. We may have a few people who just drop off the face of the earth from our church. I think there's probably going to be a few. And I can think of a few that, you know what, haven't seen them at all and it's not health issues. But for the most part, you're coming. You know what the average return to church has been in America? 10 to 30%. There's other churches in our community that meet with their pastors every single week or every other week. And we're talking about how's it going as you're reopening. And they're like, Mark, what in the world's port view? We're looking online. You got this all going. How is it possible? One church that, was, that runs a little larger than us is running about 40 people on a Sunday in, this, in our community. And so here's the deal. There's a changing happening. This is the most, one of the most relevant topics to consider that Paul is dealing with here as he's saying, remember, this is about where's the basis of Christian make a connection here in a minute for you. See, Paul could not conceive of Christian not being an active, active, active part of a local church. I'm not saying this for me. If I do church online, my life is just fine. I'm saying this for us. I needed worship today. Paul could not conceive of a vision of Christianity that was not filled with people actively being part of a local church. He's writing to a church in Philippi, and it's a brand new church in a totally pagan world. He writes to a church, a gathering of saints, 
right, right, of saints, where each one fulfills their created purpose. He says some are overseers, some are deacons. He could have went on because he goes on in other books to say the same things. Some are, I'll use these for our terms, our church. Some are cafe team members. Some are care for children in the nursery. Some are evangelists. Some are gifted in hospitality. Those are things he says in other letters. One of the discoveries we've made in the closing and the reopening, that in my opinion, as far as ministries that are like satellite ministries, all essential, equally essential to what goes on in a sanctuary, the most essential ministry that we have in this church is our Sunday morning is nursery and preschool. Matter of fact, it's the one ministry that's kept families from being able to come back to church because we didn't offer it till this Sunday, nursery and preschool. As I look down the road, I say, you know what? As we reevaluate, nursery and preschool have gone up off the charts for me because moms and dads are saying we can't come to church because, you know what, we live in a different world. When I was raised, I sat next to my parents in a Lutheran church, and if I even turned my head, my dad would whack you in the side of the head. We went twice a year, so it wasn't a big deal. But, um, but that was it. And you were just raised to shut up, sit down, and listen. That's not our world anymore. And so we have to, we have to accommodate what we've done. We've always offered it. We have to offer it. So, so here's the deal. That local church structure where everybody is committed Paul can't conceive of saying, I'm not an active part of a body. When he's just writing to the saints, he says, and here to the deacons and overseers, he's just looking on the road and says, he writes to the Christians in Philippi who, who are a structured local church. He couldn't conceive about Christianity without a structure. When he established Christianity in Europe, in Europe, the first church, he created a structure. He didn't say, well, just do what you want, brothers, you know, the truth, and just float around and do whatever you want and go wherever you want. No, he created a church and he says, you're brand new. You're brand new. You're an overseer. You're brand new. You're a deacon. Create a structure. He knew without the local church structure, you wouldn't have thriving Christianity. So the question that arises for us is do we see the the same value of the local church in a society right now that's saying, throw the local church out the window. It is friends. And if you're, some of you are looking on the road, you're, you're all tied up in politics and you're saying, oh my goodness, the election doesn't turn out this way or election doesn't turn out that way. I'll tell you something much more concerning than the next election. It's the health of the local church. Because if the local church goes away, you got nowhere to raise your kids and your grandkids. You go, well, I'm going to make it just fine. We won't pass it down to the next generation. And you want to see America in doom, America without the church. And we got every example in history. Just go to Europe right now and see what it's like. They were us 100 years ago. This is a big deal. Seeing ourselves, seeing the value of the structured local church. Now, you know what? We might not be able to have it exactly like we did in the past. That's okay. But we all have a part to play. When this thing gets ramped back up and, and, and Diane says to you, will you serve in preschool and nursery? You need to ask God instead of just saying no. I'm not being critical. I'm just saying, instead of saying no, you need to say, well, God, what have you made me to be? It just might be. You go, well, I'm not used to that. Well, guess what? You can learn. Paul looked at, he could not conceive of Christianity without an active local church where people fulfilled their roles. My hope is that this COVID situation reemphasizes um, the, 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 I would say this, because I believe this, the smaller local congregation over the mega church show for this reason. Because 
the larger the church, the more people sit and watch and do nothing. And that's why they can just say, well, we're just going to stay online. And you're not needed. You're just a consumer of Christian stuff. And I'm hoping there's a resurgence in the understanding of the value of the local church. The local church where we all find our fit. And here's the deal. We're talking about joy. How's it? Where's the connection? Joy flows from finding your fit. Who's experienced this? It's a little, little side trail, but it, it, it really the example works. You go on vacation for a week or two weeks and you have little children. And you, do, you give them everything because you want to be a good parent. So you go to this amusement park and that amusement park and you, you give them this food and that food. And at the end of the week, what are your children like? They're monsters. They're monsters. Are they not? Dads are afraid to stay like, oh, don't say it. <laughs> They're monsters, my children. Brett, you were a monster. Brett put a halo over his head. We indulged them, overindulged them to try to be good parents. And you did the same thing and I wouldn't take it back. But at the end, it's like you had to retrain them. Living a life of pure self-indulgence doesn't lead to joy. They turned into, they weren't happy. They were overindulged and they weren't happy. They were more unhappy. Because the same principle works for us. If we just live a life of just indulging myself and taking and taking, it doesn't lead to joy. Joy comes from finding your purpose. And the Lord created everybody to have a purpose in a local church. And so Paul ties here being part of a local church to finding the life of joy. You see that? That's what he's saying. Let's look at the fourth descriptive word because we've got to get going here. He says next, peace from God our Father. Paul describes God here, God, who's God? This infinite spiritual being as his father, as your father. And there's a purpose for this. For so many in Paul's day, and I think also in our day, there's a conception of God as a ruler, maybe as a dictator, as an enforcer, a disconnected deity, which came very much in Paul's days out of this idea of Greek mythology, the gods were, so all the Marvel movies that are made now, is that, it's that teaching. This separation of the gods, that's Greek mythology. It's a separation of the gods are out here and humans are down here. That would have been the normal thought. But Paul doesn't understand God like that. The scriptures don't describe God like that. He calls him father. That's a description of a relationship and love and provision and protection. A good father is one who is intimate with their children. There's an organic relationship to their child. Now, let me give you a little warning here. Don't allow yourself to be robbed here. Some of you have not and do not have a great relationship with your biological father, and I would say that's sad, and I'm sorry. It's no fair. It's not good. It's not God's plan. But you need to make a distinction in your mind and your soul. God is a good and perfect father, and your human father may not be. So do not let your experience with your earthly father cloud and diminish your view of your heavenly father. Paul calls God father, meaning he embodies all the good qualities that a good human father should exhibit 
that he would have learned from the role model of God, that God's the role model for good, and then human fathers should follow that. God the Father loves. God the Father provides. God the Father protects his children. That's the understanding that will bring joy to your heart. That when it all comes down to everything, you have a heavenly Father that loves you. That brings joy to your life. When everything's falling apart, you say, but I can rest on this. I have a heavenly Father who loves me, who provides for me, who protects me. So ask yourself a question. When you think about God, how do you envision him? How do you picture him? Do you see him as a good father that loves you and cares for you and provides for you and protects you? That's what Paul saw. That's what he communicated to the Philippians. And that's what he hopes we do also because that will bring joy to our life to understand that's who God is. Let's look at the last descriptive word. It's actually a combination of two words. Um, to help us understand Jesus God, and our relationship to, to him. Three times in these two verses, Paul mentions Jesus. Look at it. Three times he uses the word Jesus in two verses. And in each of those, he uses descriptive words that explain who Jesus is. And this is so very important. Again, I'm going to say especially in our day, because a lot of people say they follow Jesus, but the Jesus they follow is their own made-up version of who Jesus is to them. That's kind of the current thing of our culture. Well, that's what it is to me. Well, pastor, that's what it is to me. And if you get me in a bad day and you say that, I usually say, I don't care. I'll say, the problem thing is, what's this say? Not what do we think? Because I think all kinds of things that are wrong that get lined up with this. Once I was in a a pastor's meeting. This honestly really happened. It was not in this community. I was in a pastor's meeting, and maybe I've told this story before, but I don't remember. And it was a group of pastors, and I was my first time there, and, and, and the conversation came up about Jesus. And the one guy who was a leader of it said, well, let's just agree, because we want unity, that Jesus is. And I said, I'm the new guy. Jesus is what? Oh, no, 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 no. Let's agree, Jesus is. Yes, Mark? I think Jesus is a head of lettuce. That's exactly what I said. I honestly did. I said, is that all right? To me, Jesus is a head of lettuce. And the guy said, well, to Mark, if to you, Jesus is a head of lettuce, well, that's all right. I said, Jesus isn't a head of lettuce. Said Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus, the Jesus I know is the Jesus of the Bible. I said, that's Jesus. Oh, well, 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 guess what? I didn't go back to that pastor's group again. They probably were glad I didn't go back because they were wrong. Jesus isn't a head of lettuce. And although it would take months of sermons to try to scratch the surface of explaining who Jesus is according to Scripture, here in this text, Paul uses two descriptive words that are essential to understanding who Jesus is. He says, Christ and Lord. And oftentimes, in other places, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are descriptive words saying, this is who Jesus is. First, Jesus is the Christ meaning he's the anointed one. That word means the anointed one. It's the same word as Messiah. It's a name of Jesus, which shows that he is the long-awaited king and deliverer, the spiritual deliverer who sets people free from sin and death. Our salvation 
comes through Jesus the Christ, the one who sets us free by giving his own life in our place from sin and death. Jesus is the one and only way of salvation. He is the Christ. We come to Jesus the Christ to be rescued to be saved from our spiritual lostness. And every person ever born on this planet is born in spiritual lostness. And every person to find salvation must come to Jesus the Christ. That's he says. He's, he's Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. But he says he's also Jesus, what? The Lord. He is in charge. In other words, he's the Lord. Do we get the idea of a Lord? He's in charge. He's the one we follow. When Paul said at the beginning that he was a bond servant of Jesus, that implies he understands that Jesus is Lord. As Lord, Jesus is the ultimate authority. Jesus is the source of our action. Jesus helps us to navigate these crazy times because we follow him. We obey him. We listen to him. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is leader. So the most important question that can arise out of this is we ask ourselves, is Jesus my Lord and my Savior? Maybe the order matters. Is Jesus my Savior and my Lord? First, have you come to him for your salvation? He said, I can't save myself. I need a Savior. I need a Messiah. I need someone who does it for me the one, the the promised deliverer who will deliver me from the bondage of sin and death, who will set me free. That's Jesus, the Christ. And then, if you come to know him, are you then following him? Is he really Lord of your life? Or are you just a fan of Jesus? Jesus is Savior and Lord. So let's wrap it all up. Paul's saying this in these couple verses. We are, as a bondservant, we are saints. We are saints, we are saints that serve, who are loved by their heavenly Father, and we know Jesus as our Savior and their Lord. We live in that relationship. This is the foundation we can stand upon during uncertain times in order to find joy. So, We ask ourselves today, have you come to Jesus as Savior? And are you following him as Lord? That's what Paul would want us to know. Ask ourselves, if we're going to go on to have a life full of joy, he says, that's where it starts. Does that make sense? Bow your heads with me this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit for the fact that you illuminate your word. And Lord, in this little short section of verses, we see all these descriptive words that show us how we should view ourselves and view life. That when you are our Savior and our Lord, then we willingly are bondservants who you look at and say, you're you're saints. You're set apart from the sin of the world. We don't want to participate in that anymore. And we're set apart unto you that now... It's unto you. We we want to be part of your local church. Lord, it all ties together so that we can have a foundation in life, the best way to live. And from that best way to live, we can be like Paul, Lord, and we can live lives of joy in the midst of chaos. And so, Lord, I prayed, as we prayed in the beginning, would you open up our hearts and our minds 
to understand what you're trying to say to us here today because it can change everything about our life. So we're in prayer this morning. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Maybe you're here today. You say, you know what, Pastor Mark? The reality is, if I am honest with myself, I've not really come to Jesus as my Savior. And even if I have, I'm not really living with Him as my Lord. But today, I want to make a change. I'm feeling the influence of the Holy Spirit. I'm understanding that I want to change. And so I'm asking you, Lord, this day, I want to surrender my life to you. I'm asking you to save me, wash my sins away, make me brand new. And from this day forward, I want to live as Lord. And Lord, I ask this, especially for those who say, yeah, I said that prayer a long time ago, but the reflection on my own life, even the last seven days says, I'm not really living with Jesus as Lord. I'm clearly living where I'm my own Lord and Jesus is peripheral. If you feel in any way in these two areas that you need to make a change today, this is what I want you to do. I'm not going to even look. I'm just going to have my eyes closed and you have all your eyes closed. If you say, I want to make a change today, I want you right now to slip up your hand. Obey the Holy Spirit. Just raise up your hand as an act of surrender to the Lord. It's only you. No one else is even paying attention. But I want you to say, yes, Lord. Either yes, today I'm saying, I need to ask you into my life to be my Savior. Or today, Lord... I need to be honest and say you've not really been Lord of my life. But today I want to make a change. And God, my upraised hand says, yes, yes, um, I'm being serious. If your hand's up, you can go ahead and put it down. Jesus, this is what I ask There's not a thing I can do to affect any of that. I've only done my best, Lord, to try to explain what your word seems to say so clearly. And now I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would respond to us as we pray. Just in the quietness of your heart, you can pray this way, Jesus. Today, I've said yes to you. Today, I've said yes, that I need you as my Savior. I need my sins forgiven. I want to begin a life where I'm walking, yes. God, I can't save myself, but today I want to say yes to being your child, to being identified as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, I say this from this day forward, I want to walk with you. I don't even know what that means, but I want to walk where you are Lord and I am a bondservant. Or I honestly ask myself, What does Jesus want to do with my day? What does Jesus want to do with my resources? What does Jesus want to do with my energy? What do you want, Jesus? That's what being, understanding that we're a bondservant is all about, Lord. Help us to see that. How freeing it will be, Lord. How joy-filled it will be when we hear your voice saying, this is what I want you to do. And we follow and we obey. And we're amazed. So, Lord, I pray for each one of us 
that these descriptive words from your word today would help us have this foundation that a life of joy can spring from. So bless your church family, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me this morning. If you said yes to Jesus and you've not done that before or you've walked away and you're coming back to the Lord, I challenge you to do this. Before the, before the sun goes down tonight, I want you to tell somebody that you said yes to, you said yes to Jesus today. And if you say, you know what, I'm really coming to terms with the fact that I've maybe not really been living with Jesus as my, as my Lord, I want you to think about that and simply ask, Jesus, what's that look like for the next seven days? What's it look like for the next 24 hours? Maybe take some time over the next week and just meditate on those five descriptive words, two verses, just look at them and let the Lord by His Spirit to work them over in your spirit. Spend some time saying, God, how do, they, how do I reflect on this? How do I, how do I embody this? Let the Spirit do a deep work inside of We pray a blessing over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you, church. Have a wonderful day in Christ enjoying God's goodness, His favor and His protection. We love you. Bye-bye.